Tedesco is pursuing his MPhil in classical Indian religion at Oxford University with plans to focus on innovative research and social applications of Hindu psychospirituality. His background is what fascinated me and compelled me to ask him to come on That So Hindu. Andrew was born into a minister's family and became a preacher and missionary to India after studying theology at Wheaton College and Princeton Seminary. As an evangelical Pentecostal Christian, he says his relationship with God was his passion, but unhealthy religious teachings led to an anxiety disorder, sexual repression, and spiritual disillusionment. After an agonizing crisis of faith, he rejected religion and spirituality, but then unexpectedly found Hindu dharma and healing through practices like meditation, psychedelics, and breathwork that introduced him to profound mystical experiences for the first time, unlike anything he had ever experienced in his previous religious life. He learned to integrate spirituality with rationality and science in a grounded, healthy way and has helped others with similar experiences heal and reclaim a healthy connection with spirituality by using trauma-informed therapeutic techniques and psycho-spiritual practices. Welcome, Andrew. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your religious upbringing. You know, I did give a very high level um, introduction, but what were you taught about who you were, what your purpose in life was to be, and what your relationship was supposed to be with others, both those inside the fold and outside of it? Yeah, so I was raised as a Pentecostal evangelical Christian. And so this group of Christianity uh, is really into world evangelism. They really have a, a strong belief in heaven and hell. And that people who believe in Jesus Christ as the, the sole source of salvation are going to heaven. And those who don't are going to hell. And so that really is a, a very primary motivation in, in the religion, this, this fear of hell and, and this belief that we, people need to be saved from their sins. And so I was raised from birth in this environment. My father is a Pentecostal minister, and he started a church right after I was born. And you know, he really felt that the Holy Spirit of God called him to to raise up and train missionaries and to reach the lost and and you know felt really passionate that this was a, a way to serve people was was the best way of helping people and and to relieve their suffering. So it, was, it has a very pure motivation for most people who are into this. They really really believe that they're helping people and they're really motivated to help people. And so I was just taught that this was reality. This is the way things are. The Bible is the literal word of God that we are to read it literally and take it as the, the authority in our lives. And so I, I was just raised with this very vibrant Christian community. We were extremely active. We attended church multiple times a week. Our church community was like a big family right? and we would call it our family. So, so there was a very strong sense of community and identity uh, that was connected with, with the religion. In fact, so much so that 
uh, when I left my religion, I felt like I no longer knew who I was. And mm-hmm. that happens to many people who deconvert. Uh, I call it a religious ego. It, it's so ingrained. You don't even have an identity apart from wow. the religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were, yeah, we were really taught that happiness and health was to be found through really following the commands of Jesus and the Bible and uh, really giving your all to the faith mm-hmm. in, in terms of your, your time, your devotion, uh, your relationships, and that uh, the world is a place of temptation and sin ruled by dark, evil spiritual forces. So mm-hmm. there, there's sort of a, a paranoid relationship to outsiders and and to the world mm-hmm. they wouldn't characterize it this way of course right uh, but, but but analyzing it psychologically it is very paranoid in that uh, we were taught that people who are worldly and sinful you know they're they're ultimately uh, lost children of god so to speak Mm-hmm. But because of their evil influence, their sin, they could pull you down and turn you away from the faith if you weren't careful. So there's, there's sort of this tension of, of having to interact with people in the world in order to evangelize them, but also being on your toes because, you know, if you go in too deep, you might get tempted and you might, you know, end up having sex or like, uh, you know, doing something awful or, or very human uh, right. but for them. Uh, you know, that, that could really lead you astray or, or even like in your interactions with people of other faiths, maybe of being tempted and going, going down a rabbit hole that leads you away from Christianity or, or from the exclusivism of, of believing that only Jesus, Jesus is the only way to be saved. Uh, so, so yeah, I was raised in that, that kind of fundamentalist Christian environment yeah. and I took it very seriously. I could imagine that that us versus them, but then us saving them could be very intoxicating and also equally as difficult to leave. Um, So that kind of takes me into my next question is that at what point did you begin recognizing that the faith of your family um, wasn't resonating with you or was harming your well-being? Yeah, I really started to come out of it when I was working on my Master of Divinity mm. in seminary, which is actually when a lot of people question because they're forced to ask uncomfortable questions or examine the Bible in critical ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas at most, most religious groups in general, not just Christian groups, tend not to be very critical of their own biases and interpretations. So they just, even though they spend a lot of time studying their sacred texts, they don't tend to do so from outside perspectives and ones that are are critical of their sacred beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would say the intellectual questions really came later for me. It wasn't primarily an intellectual matter. It was a matter of health, survival, mental health, and well-being. Mm. I was really miserable in a lot of ways and my faith wasn't working for me in the ways it was supposed to work Mm. and this is something that happens for most of the clients i work with who are healing from religious trauma 
who are questioning a religion that is no longer working for them is disillusionment. And uh, I was finding that I wasn't getting the kind of victorious life I was promised. I was supposed to have this peace that surpassed all understanding and this amazing relationship with God. And I really found that I was dissatisfied that I didn't really have the kinds of spiritual experiences that I was supposed to have. I wasn't having this kind of clear dialogue with God where God was my best friend and I could tell it was always a question. Am I just making this up in my head? Am I just imagining or fantasizing about God and based on what people are telling me and emotional preaching? And it always felt kind of fabricated or or there was always a question whether it was something my mind was making up or whether it was actually a genuine spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't clear or vivid. It, it, and so there was that aspect. And in the same time, I had a lot of fear and anxiety and depression and uh, sexual repression. And I just got desperate to be healthier and happier. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing therapy and studying psychology and just questioning along those lines. And what I came to realize when I made this intention to be free from fear and to be happier and healthier was that many of my psychological problems were rooted specifically in teachings in the Bible Mm. and in, in certain practices and interpretations that were that were taught and practiced in my specific version of Christianity. So that quest to be healthy and free and to have spiritual experience led to me questioning coming out of it and then becoming an atheist. Hmm. Now, you know, you, you mentioned that your father had actually started a church um, Mm -hmm. as you were born. And so how does one go about communicating this with their family and with a community that has kind of become your gathered family and how did they take it? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think that's one of the, one of the most difficult issues for most people who have this experience. Mm -hmm. So for me, I tried to keep it secret for a long time Um, for most of the time that I was questioning, I would just go on to like online forums or, or or speak with a few people who I knew I could speak with very privately Mm -hmm. because as, as I was questioning, it's a very sensitive phase. You're not really sure who to trust. You feel isolated and you're not quite even sure if you want to leave the religion yet. I wasn't. So I was like, do I want to be influenced by people who are not religious and right. do I want is so it's this very fragile, shaky kind of transitional space to live in. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then the, there's fear, too, about sharing your doubts with people who are Christians because they might judge you or you might lose your standing or in my case, my career being a minister right. and working on that. I mean, as I'm studying this in grad school and preaching at the same time. So. Yeah, it was a challenge, but I ended up, I mean, and then there's a lot of shame. Like, uh, I think most people feel like they've done something wrong. Like there's something wrong with them. Like 
that they're not seeing the results because that's what the religion teaches. There can't be something wrong with the religion or the Bible. It has to be something wrong with you. You're not a good enough Christian. You're sinning. You don't have enough faith. Something like that, right? Vicious feedback loop in some sense. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So uh, after hiding it for a while, I and after I graduated seminary, and actually after I was a minister in New York City for a while, I ended up leaving and quitting my job. I just couldn't handle the cognitive dissonance anymore. Right. And having no backup plan or anything to do. Uh, but, but at that point, at some point, I just told my parents that I was no longer a Christian and they did the best they could with it. They were pretty open. And I I think that community did did pretty well with it. Um, And in this community too, they, they should be that way because they believe that you're supposed to be a witness to people who've gone astray. So Mm. like the, the, you know, their hope is that you'll come back into the fold eventually. Right loving and open to these people. So at least in these groups tend not to shun people as much. It still happens. Sure. There are many religious groups that do shun people, but but mine tends to hold out the hope that they're going to come back eventually. So my community tended to be friendly, but they would also try to evangelize me. And sometimes when I go home, there'll be Christians and people will reach out to me and email me, you know, Oh, we're praying for you. And let me share this with you as if I don't, if, as if I'm not familiar to with all of their evangelistic tactics, you know, right? <laughs> well, oh, that one's going to work on me now. I think you got me. <laughs> so, you know, many of my friends who've embraced Hindu teachings and practices, um, who weren't born into the tradition have shared some moments or events of serendipity, you know, finding a 25 cent copy of the Bhagavad Gita at a thrift shop or being obsessed with the Beatles and following their journey to India or stumbling into a lecture, um, you know, by some traveling guru that have introduced them to what is fundamentally a, a, a different paradigm from the one that they were immersed in. Um, Of course, as a Hindu, I oftentimes think that, well, obviously that was their past karma that brought them to that moment. But, um, you know, share with our audience what event or series of events um, led from, you know, we've heard how you went from evangelical Pentecostal Christianity to atheism. But what was that? What was that journey or how did you travel from then atheism to Hinduism? Yeah. So it's been quite a journey. And I, and I think too, as far as Hinduism, I, I think Hinduism, the big tent of Hinduism probably best fit fits where I'm at in, in terms sure. of any tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like in terms of though labeling myself quite, quite where I'm I like, I, I don't know. I don't know quite where I land, but, but I identify with a lot of things within Hinduism. Anyway. Sure. Um, so very Hindu, by the way, but okay. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> so that being said, um, I did my first significant missionary work in India because mm-hmm. what you have to understand, I know that's loaded and, and offensive, but 
what we were taught in that tradition was that the, the most, the highest form of service to God and to humanity that you could possibly do is to go risk your life for the gospel, sharing this good news of salvation with other people so they could be saved from their sins and go to heaven. Mm. Right. So there's a very pure motive, even though it's highly distorted and harmful. Right. Like that. And and so I believed that, you know, I, I had this really big heart and really wanted to serve and help people and do this amazing thing for God and, and the world and give my life in that way. And that's what I was taught was the best thing you could do. And so I ended up uh, in Wheaton College in my undergraduate degree going on a two month missionary trip uh, to Jaipur. Mm. And uh, we were with this group who was working with uh, doing outreach to Rajputs and Brahmins. Hmm. Yeah. And so what happened was I just fell in love with India and with the people and the culture and everything, like just immediately. Huh. And not the intention behind the trip, but serendipity <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and I, I mean I, and from that moment I decided this is where I'm going to go be a missionary this is where I'm called and I was looking for a place to go and and my career goal was to become a lifelong missionary and to bring him because we believe too in that tradition they believe that uh, once churches are established in every distinct ethno-linguistic people group that that's when Jesus is going to come back, the second coming of Christ. And so sort of it's going to usher in this grand new age of, of salvation and justice and, and the end times and all of that. So for them, it's, it's sort of you're, you're literally saving the world right. doing this. And India happens to have the highest concentration of what they call unreached people groups. Oh yeah, I've been on a project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like you know a hotbed for missionary activity, mm-hmm. and and so I thought like this is this is this is it. This is where I gotta go, and I worked on that as my career goal for like many years, and I was going to seminary with that intention, and I ended up going there five different times on short trips. Mm. Uh, for the for working with churches there and, and doing these kind of evangelistic activities, I don't know how much we actually ended up accomplishing as missionaries, though. And, you know, it's really frustrating often for missionaries to go there because you know, with Hinduism, people will they, they just they love it and they'll say yes, we love, we'll take it. You know, the gospel, Jesus, bring it, <laughs> and yeah. then they they put Jesus in the temple, and the missionaries are like, oh no, 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 this was a replacement program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so so, but that was my intention. And uh, when when I ended, I was utterly devastated when I ended up leaving Christianity because it was my identity, my career, my sense of purpose, and also no longer going to India. And I had this dream of of moving to India and being a missionary and being immersed in that. And so it ended up coming back online for me in a totally unexpected way. Hmm. I really just gave it up at that point. Uh, so what, what happened was I ended up going on this healing journey. Mm-hmm. And I think this, this happens for a lot of people, actually. 
especially with what's happening now in the U.S. in terms of uh, psychedelic research and mental health research. So I ended up hearing that that certain psychedelics like uh, like mushrooms, like plants, were were being used to heal trauma mm. in these therapeutic ways, in these clinical ways. And uh, so I ended up coming into communities where that was being done. And I found that they were just as healing as I had heard hmm. and that, that they, that not only did they help me heal trauma, uh, but that I had these vivid mystical spiritual experiences for the first time in my life, the kinds of experiences that I had been promised when I was a Christian, but that I had never actually had. And these experiences included you know, encountering these kinds of Hindu deities and and having these kinds of experiences that were I've then discovered were actually described within Hinduism and within Indian psycho-spiritual traditions. Mm. And so that led me full circle to realize like, oh, they <laughs> actually get what's going on and have been talking about it for thousands of years. Right. So now I've come full circle uh, as a seeker and as a, as a learner. Hmm. Fascinating. So, you know, a little bit earlier, you spoke about certain core doctrinal truths from the Bible that might be considered, well, fundamental to Christianity. But the manner in which these were inculcated or taught to led to you suffering from anxiety, repression, um, or disillusionment. If these truths are indeed fundamental to Christianity, can someone be Christian without incurring these harms? And if so, how? Yeah. Um, so I think what I meant was uh, was was Christian fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And so Christian fundamentalism is... Uh, or, or, or religious fundamentalism exists in all religions, uh, but but in Christian fundamentalism, it's a very literalistic approach to the Bible and in a, and exclusivism, saying that our religion is the only way, uh, that every other way is 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 wrong or invalid in some way. Mm. Uh, so I would say that is inherently harmful, mm -hmm. um, and there's no such thing as a one Christianity. Right. Uh, you know, there are many different Christianities and, and a lot of things that different things that people mean by Christianity. And there are Christian mystics, which are a lot closer to Hinduism than the Orthodox Christianity. Uh, they're definitely not a, a majority. Though. <laughs> Unfortunately, I would say the majority expression of Christianity in the world is fundamentalist. It is evangelical mm -hmm. and even Pente uh, Pentecostal. So... Just just in terms of numerically, or at least a very substantial majority, and I would say, uh, you know, that vision is inherently does does include beliefs that are inherently toxic and abusive and controlling, and based on predicated on fear. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't think there's any way around that, and and I think that to be a Christian. Uh, who is honest and sincere, I think, I would hope anyway that the Christians who are sincere would acknowledge that there are teachings in the Bible that are harmful, you know, that were, that are just not good ideas that were written by people and, and had all kinds of motives or misunderstandings and that, you know, we need to deal with them and, and disown them. 
Yeah. But there are plenty of teachings in the Bible, you know, that are are frankly abusive and colonialist and, and like you know, teachings about hell, uh, teachings about uh, viewing other religions as idolatrous and evil and then to be done away with or conquered. You know, I, I, I don't like to try to put a spin on these things or interpret them away, which a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's um, very insightful. I want to talk, uh, continue talking about trauma, but shift the focus just a little bit and um, to something specifically in the context of historical generational trauma. And let me elaborate. So you know, news headlines oftentimes cover incidents of interreligious tensions and violence in India, and most often Hindus are portrayed as the sole aggressors. And now I'm by no means justifying aggression or violence by anyone. But what I find interesting um, is what's not discussed, um, even at a distance from these incidents. And that's the scars and fissures of colonialism, both Mughal and European. What's rarely talked about are unethical and forced conversions, iconoclasm, and demonization of indigenous traditions brought on by the exclusivist and expansionist religionists that came with both eras of colonialism. The partition is another example, um, as is kind of ongoing conversion by many American and European evangelical churches. Um, So I guess my question for you is, as a therapist um, and, and as a, well, specifically as a therapist, could the tensions that we're seeing today, and I don't mean to oversimplify these issues because I'm sure there's economic and political and social um, causes, but could generational trauma be at play? And if it is, first, what is generational trauma? Could it be a play? And can that aspect of it be healed? Yes. And I think it has to be healed. I think we have to address it. And it is at play. You know, when, when we're talking about things like colonialism and and religious wars and religious indoctrination, you know, uh, there's pretty much everyone involved is has trauma from these things. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the both the people who are colonized and the colonizers who are carrying these uh, traumatizing doctrines are also traumatized mm-hmm. by that. So uh, it's it's a vicious cycle and it needs to be addressed at the root. And the root uh, for many of these these things is the doctrine, is the teachings themselves, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of these teachings are fundamentally fear based, rooted in fear. And and, and when you have a, a belief system that, that really at the core is this fear of hell, and that's an incredibly traumatized and traumatizing message and, and way to view the world, really. And it's rooted in historical trauma. The whole belief in hell uh, actually came out of a period of time when um, the Jewish people were experiencing genocide and invasion. And uh, and it wasn't just the ideas about hell came about in different parts of the world, but in the, in the Judeo-Christian uh, context, this this view w- was really when 
Uh, people didn't see God's justice happening. Their enemies were triumphing. They were witnessing all these unimaginable horrors and atrocities they were experiencing. And they said, how could God still be just? And if we're being beaten by our enemies and all the promises are being broken, well, uh, and that's when they started to develop a belief in the afterlife because, well, our enemies will be punished in the afterlife. If they're not being punished now, we're going to preserve God's justice by having this view where they'll be punished later. And what's, what's the most like satisfying kind of a, 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 a consequence for the most unimaginable horrors that, you know, humans ha- have ever endured like genocide that was literally happening at that time. Well, you know, when, when you think about that animalistic primal kind of vengeance that, that results from that kind of trauma, something like hell starts to make sense. Mm-hmm. That's really when it took root in that way. And so then you have this core trauma that, that is embedded in this religion and, uh, and ends up being spread in this, in this way you know, throughout history. So you've got to believe, yeah, that it's generational, uh, it's, it's theological, and uh, it, it has to be addressed. And it's not the fault of any individual, obviously, because what's so tragic about these kinds of ideas and systems is that they end up taking some of the, the most pure hearted people with the best of intentions and, and end up convincing them to do some really, really tragic and, and awful things. Right. So these aren't people who are like, generally, they're not like sadistic or like they generally genuinely (laughs) need to help people. Right. Their intentions, their intentions are good. Uh, Maybe their methods and what they're actually trying to solve leaves much to be uh, questioned. How, what, what type of therapies or what types of practices might offer healing? Um, and, And this is for, people in the Hindu community um, or, or, you know, Indians in general. Yeah. Yeah. For Indians in terms of specifically. uh, Like these, these, this historical trauma. um, So for instance, you know, you can go to India and um, be at some, you know, very important temples. And it's in the shadow of a mosque, for instance, or there might be, um, you know, temple, a small temple, but it's surrounded by five churches because there's Western money coming in that can absolutely outspend the local community. And you have, um, you know, families continuing to be torn apart um, as a result of, of so of you know, conversion and then the judgment that sometimes comes along with it, because that's the message that certain people have been sold. So whether it's kind of ongoing or whether it's historical, is there something that society can focus on that is, I guess, um, trauma therapy inspired that could begin mending the fissures mm-hmm. that have been created that continue to be created. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is it helps for us to understand what's at stake for people mm-hmm. psychologically. And 
so so there, there's multiple ways to go about this and all of them are important but, but, but one is that you know when when someone converts to a religion or um it, it's often there are there are issues of identity and belonging that are at stake for mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and so so it tends to give people a sense of of, of being someone important or chosen or, or special and, and maybe they didn't find that in their community or family or 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 it gives them at least the hope of a way to overcome personal struggles or to have a higher social state uh, Standing so a, a lot of way the ways that missionaries will try to appeal to people in India is is by appealing to those who are impoverished or lower caste who mm-hmm. you know might might see this as a as a liberatory kind of move or you know sure. the, the caste system was oppressive and you're you're saying we're all equal in Christ and you know that so, so there's that kind of a dynamic going on um, so really recognizing where people are coming from. And uh, that they also will tend to uh, defend their religion as if it's a part of their identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so that, that you know, people can get very defensive uh, when we come at them in a, in a, a combative way. And, uh, and, and so really, I think speaking to people on a, on a human to human level and, and being able to recognize that, that there's, there's some really deep things that are going on psychologically here. Mm. Uh, and as far as healing from the trauma, I think just having conversations about it, really being able to be honest about how it's impacted us. Uh, one thing that I work with people about is, is really accepting and processing rage and anger and hatred. Right. And, you know, how to work with those emotions and accept them and not and bring them out of shame and, mm-hmm. you know, really work with them in a way that's productive. Yeah, no, I I love that. You know, oftentimes I think has at least since independence and and in the in the you know context of partition of you know a civilization that was um, split along religious lines, a lot of these historical tensions were brushed under the rug and they were never spoken about uh, and. I think it's important about what you said about having those conversations, but also keeping in mind that in having those conversations, you're not holding today's Christian or today's Muslim responsible for a historical wrong. Right. And and if it is someone who is actively um, evangelizing or trying to convert you, well, that that's a that's a conversation and you have to have it at the human level. And yes, there may be. you know, some intention, some action by the person that you're talking to, that they are responsible for their own thoughts and words and actions, but not necessarily at that historical level. So I really appreciate um, what you shared. You know, in some of your writings and videos, you mentioned various kinds of fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism, secular fundamentalism, and political fundamentalism. How are these similar and how are these different? Yeah, I mean, I would say fundamentalism is characterized by uh, it's a rigid ideal ideology, a rigid worldview mm-hmm. uh, that that dichotomizes it splits the world into us versus them categories, mm. right and wrong, very black and white in a very simplistic way. You know, uh, 
morals and ethics and, and the way things work in the world is, is very rarely very simple. There's a lot of grays and complexities and nuances. Mm-hmm. And uh, these ideologies tend not to recognize that. They tend to be rigid. And uh, they again, they tend to be exclusivist because with that, us versus them, it's, it's you know, we're right and they're wrong. And there's one way of viewing and thinking about things. And as, so you see that in, in politics, you see that in, in all sorts of different ways. It, it's it, that kind of a worldview can be really appealing because it's simple. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very clear where you stand and where other people stand. And it also can give you a sense of uh, purpose. Like, mm-hmm. all right, here's this community, you know, here's the enemy, here's the right. good people, here's what I need to do, here's how I belong. And, uh, you, you know, whereas uh, life outside of that kind of a bubble can be very much more complex, uh, there can be a lot more room for anxiety and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would say though all of them, all those, all the fundamentalisms share that kind of an ethos mm-hmm. and that framework of rigidity and and of, of literalism and and this sort of all or nothing type view. Mm. No, that's great. Um, I just have one or two questions left for you. Um, one, you know, you've talked about your own story of religious trauma. I'd like you to share because you've worked with so many people. What's maybe one of the most fulfilling stories of helping someone through religious trauma and what techniques did you find were most helpful to them? Yeah, uh, there are so many. There are so many. (laughs) I figured (laughs) I'm going to give you the difficult task of picking one. Okay. Maybe two. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Well, well, I'm thinking just in terms of like keeping, you know, them private, just some generalities that I can yes. share. Sure. Uh, you know, I would say I've been able to work, walk people through uh, the process of really feeling like they're all alone and isolated in mm-hmm. the world, um, that they've lost their family, their community, their identity, and to have them rebuild that and find that they're very capable and competent and uh, and that also to be proud of themselves because people usually feel ashamed, like they've done something wrong. And actually, they were deciding they were taking a very bold and courageous decision to question and, and to leave and, and to forge out their own way. And uh, so I've also, you know, worked with a lot of people with hell, PTSD. So with with violent flashbacks of, of burning in hell and of uh, just oh. like a, a tremendous fear of going to hell because it's taught that you'll go to hell if you leave. So then when you do leave, uh, you are often just terrified mm. all the time of right. going to hell. And so I've helped people who are paralyzed, literally paralyzed and couldn't work because of that fear. Wow. Um, to, to heal from that and, and to no longer fear hell. I've helped many people with that issue specifically and uh, where, where they're just not afraid of it anymore. And then to really um, develop um, a, a new, new version, a new spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say those are some, some common things that, that we work through, but there are all kinds of nuances and, and different kinds of ways in which people can suffer with this. I mean, also people with uh, 
you know, who are not monogamous or heterosexual, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, so anyone who's gay or, or non-binary or anything like that really has it tough often in these religious sex. Mm-hmm. Right, and, right. And, and so really learning to accept their identity and to come out of all that shame and guilt and fear. It's a really amazing process to witness, and especially when people, you know, can feel so hopeless and alone and shattered and, you know, after spending maybe a whole life in that religion and they don't know anything else. Yeah, that's that's powerful. So my last question for you, what's next? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so right now, I, you know, I work with people who are healing from religious trauma. And I'm also interested in, in uh, how that looks in Eastern traditions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it happens in all, all traditions as well. Hinduism is not immune from that. So I've also worked with some people who've experienced some guru abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that around non-duality, there can be some some teachings like, well, there's ultimately no such thing as right or wrong. Mm. Uh, therefore, you know, we can kind of do whatever and it's serving your highest good in a way that you don't understand from a non-dual perspective. And then abuse can happen within that framework. And, you know, things like gurus threatening if they leave and they'll be cursed for like thousands of lifetimes, stuff like that, that can be really, mm. really damaging and controlling and abusive too. Uh, you know, so I'm very curious about, you know, how to, to really approach, you know, Hinduism from a trauma informed perspective as well. And then to really, because really, you know, there are a lot of people like me now who are really, you know, seeking uh, wisdom from the Eastern traditions, but who are also very cautious and afraid of being taken advantage of and abused again. And it does happen. Uh, yeah. You know, so so yeah. how can we safeguard against that? So I mean, right now I'm 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 learning Sanskrit at Oxford. All right. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'll be you know diving deeply into probably probably tantrism, I think, but we'll we'll see what I end up really focusing on with that. And uh, you know, I hope to be teaching and speaking and doing advocacy work and and really really diving into the integration of, of spirituality and ecology. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. I really enjoyed our conversation and um, look forward to seeing what's ahead for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And people uh, can find me at my blog to lifeafterdogma.org. And I offer coaching for people with religious trauma and also other issues. I'm a in, in IFS, it's called Internal Family Systems Practitioner, which is a specific way of working with trauma and with mental health issues. So if you're interested in that or if you want to read more of my writings, you can check out my blog there. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org.